the show with your friend and mine. So tell me, Dr. Squee, who's it gonna be this time? We like to hear you talk, and we love to hear you listen. And if you are not subscribed, you won't know what you're missing. So welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Tonight, Squee welcomes... Mike Fenton Stevens. And now here's the man himself, Dr. Squee. Hello and welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. I'm Dr. Squee, this here is my show. Tonight, I'm welcoming a man who has done pretty much everything. He's done from soaps to sitcoms. He's done the Royal Shakespeare Company to Panto. Uh, he's done his own podcast most recently, and he is slumming it right here on mine for the tonight. For tonight. Please welcome Michael Fenton-Stevens. How are you doing tonight, sir? Hello. How are you? All right. It's funny. It's I'm very well, thank you. It's lovely to be here. You know, and... Uh, it I'm looking a bit flushed, I know, but that's because uh, I have been working in my greenhouse, basically, which is, uh, you've never seen anything so packed with tomato plants. Uh, anybody wants any tomatoes come September, I'm going to have a glut. I know that much. Great. Uh, it's going to be thousands of them. I'm going to fill a freezer full of tomatoes, see me through the winter. <laughs> that's uh, that's basically my aim in life at the moment. You know, it's uh, I have no greater ambition than that. Just, you know, can I grow, how many how many tomatoes can I grow? I can feel this turning into a sitcom plot itself. Like, you, you'll be just having to, tomato soup, tomato <laughs> jam, tomato everything. Well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll start at uh, my own little, you know, one man. A bit like, what was that fantastic thing that Rob Brydon did where he sat in the car all, all the time and just filmed oh, himself? Yeah. That's the sort of thing we should be making now. That's the sort, exactly the sort of thing that people should be making, is I'm going to basically make a comedy programme with me in my greenhouse, just talking to myself and uh, talking to the plants and, and occasionally channeling Prince Charles and that sort of thing, you know, with the idea of, uh, of that actually you can get them to grow better. Uh, it, it's not terribly promising at the moment, as you can tell from the script, but uh, I, I think it can get better. I'm sure I can work up one or two jokes <laughs> for it. Well, generally, it... those programs are just watching people be sad, isn't it? You know, they're 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 sort of sad people who don't realise they're sad, you know, in those situations, which we all get a pleasure out of. We all get pleasure, strangely, from watching other people suffer. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> most uh, most comedy is that. Most comedy is watching people suffer, and and laughing at it, laughing at their yeah. their predicament. So farce farce is is a man, perfectly normal man who makes a mistake of inviting somebody round and then uh, she bring, he brings out a model and uh, and then the woman who cleans the hotel comes in and they all end up half naked in a wardrobe when his wife turns up with the vicar. And that's what a, that's what a farce is. Yeah. And, and what's brilliant about it, what makes us laugh, is that this man, for this man, it's the most awful thing in the world. He's in torture. He's desperate to get out of it. And every step he takes digs his hole deeper and deeper and deeper. So we continue to laugh at it. Uh, and uh, it's true of much comedy. You watch people being very serious about things. Nearly all the comedy that you'll see on television now, it's people who genuinely believe 
or they, they're acting that they genuinely believe that what they're saying is important. If you look at The Office, yeah. the character of Ricky Gervais is, that he played, the, the um, office manager, that character wasn't uh, wasn't a person who knew he was a fool and knew that everything he said was idiotic. As far as he was concerned, he was almost a guru. He, he was yeah. a he knew what life was about. He was telling you things. This is how life is. This is the way to live life. This is the sort of person you should be like me. I know what I'm doing. And we all watched him make mistake after mistake after mistake and faux pas after faux pas. Uh, and that's true, I think, of, uh, of all sorts of situations. You know, if you look at, uh, apart from the the, um, the comedy of the absurd, which I quite like, I quite like the comedy of, of the, the grotesque. So I'm a big fan of the League of Gentlemen. Oh, you know, wonderful. And, and, and they are just, they're, you're watching characters there that, that are that are not necessarily stupid, but actually are, are just, well, they reflect us. That's what actually makes us cringe somewhat, but also makes us laugh. Because again, they're, they're beautifully observed characters that we, watch and and go oh i i know that man i know that woman you know we know a person who's obsessed with pens and having them in the right order yeah. and nobody's allowed to touch their pens you know these are mine and you know that that's the thing that gives me authority is my pen you know i'm the person who gives pens out and at the end of the the, the class i take the pens back yeah. and that that means i'm in charge so pauline the moment that her pen is broken her power is gone. I had a, a French teacher like that. He was, um, he was, well, strangely enough, he was a very nice man, although I think underneath it all, he was a sadist, uh, which, uh, but then, you know, a lot of teachers in the 1970s were. Uh, they were either very strange people or, uh, or very lost people. I can vouch uh, for the 80s were... and 90s too. Ah, uh, yeah, right. I think it's probably true right through school. We all know yeah. some of them. There's always a teacher, isn't there? But I had a French teacher who, um, who his power was his cane and we of course i was at school at the time when you could be caned and we were caned regularly for no apparent reason just for not getting an answer right that was enough as far as they were concerned so uh, you were terrified of getting things wrong all the time which meant that you your your brain was completely fuddled which meant you got things wrong so it was a very unfair system but he had this cane and it wasn't like a normal cane like a, a, it didn't whip it was a very solid piece of dowling. And in fact, it was his, his marker. He would, he would point to things on the board and bang it against the board violently and say, and say things in French. Now, I had seven years of French lessons with this man uh, over my school time, and I cannot speak a word of it. Yeah. So that shows just how bad the teaching was, that I got through the whole thing and I learned it sort of almost as it happened, and then immediately forgot it, because I was terrified the whole time. And he would bang against the board and shout at you in French, and you would just guess at something, just plump for anything, anything, anything. Please let this be right. Jean et Colette, dans la salle de bain, peut-être? You know, <laughs> and and he, you'd wait. And and then if you, if you were stupid enough and you got things wrong enough, he would just signal and you would go to the front of the desk this is a very awful story i have to say yeah. you, would, you would go to the front of the class and you would have to lie over his desk and then pull your jacket up to reveal your backside and then he would stand in front of you and he would chalk the dowling like that and then he would gently tap you on the backside and then he would come back 
and he would chalk the dowling again, and then he would whack you with it. And then he would walk to the front and say, Oh, just an inch out. And he would keep hitting you until he hit the same mark. Isn't that awful? Still, though, happiest days of your life, right? Yeah, it's, a t- it's amazing that I'm still able to smile and laugh. You know, extraordinary. And one day, this man absolutely lost his power, like Pauline with her pens, because he, he got so angry, he slammed this dowling against his desk, and it shattered into a thousand pieces all over the place. They flew everywhere. And we all stopped, and then we started to laugh. And we laughed uncontrollably as a class. And he stood at the front screaming at us, Stop! 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 But we couldn't. And his power had gone. He he, he turned into a sad little man with no stick. It's very sad. Very sad story. Interesting story. What if he's still alive? I doubt. It's an interesting story of power over respect and which one's the better motivator. What what earns you that respect? I mean, um, in those situations, to have respect only because people are scared of you is not true respect, is it? Whereas no. we had other teachers. I had another teacher, an English teacher, who um, who completely had my respect because he was very funny. He was a very funny man and had a very dry sense of humour. He was mocked by some of the kids who didn't quite understand him because he was a bit like... Well, if, in, he'd learnt his comedy from the goons and he'd learnt his comedy from Spike Milligan. So he, was, he would do silly voices and he would play silly characters. And if we were bored and not paying attention, he would open the, the cupboard with the books in it and talk to somebody in there as if um, they're not listening to me. They don't know what they're not interested. They don't want to come in with you. And he would go inside and just get in the cupboard and shut the door. Now, the kids would look around as I say, he's a nutter. He's a complete nutter. And uh, and I used to think, this man's a genius. He's fantastic. I love him. And he just to make me laugh all the time. And he was sort of his behavior, that behaving like that, was the thing that inspired me, I think, to go into comedy. He was the very first person in my life to say to me, you should become an actor. Uh, and I said, why? And he said, well, he said, I've never had a a student in all my years of teaching who's so convincing when he lies about why he hasn't done his homework (laughs) (laughs) so I said thank you very much he said you'd either be an actor or a journalist they're both good at lying (laughs) (laughs) he missed politician off (laughs) did I what? he missed politician off the list oh yeah yeah, no politician (laughs) no he was never going to send me down that route he wasn't stupid I'd be too good at it i would you know end up as prime minister and then i'd I'd basically tell everybody how wonderfully well we were doing and how brilliantly i'd done everything even though i hadn't done anything and i'd messed everything up uh which seems to be the 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 thing that gets you to be prime minister i think isn't it just let everyone you know isn't it marvelous what we've done and everybody goes is it yes it is isn't it so we must all stick together we must have that uh, wartime spirit come on now everybody and you go we're not in a war This it's not a war it's not, we've not got an enemy, it's a virus. You know, yeah. we, we, we should be doing things logically and scientifically, not not in that sort of, you know, gung-ho, come on everybody, pull together attitude. I think it's um, it's very weird. And also very there was a, how, how, an article I was reading earlier about how there were so many objections during the war and uh, how, yeah. how, like, the government were held to account. 
and it's this kind of fallacy that we were never held to account during wartime. Yeah, that nobody ever, nobody ever complained. Nobody ever said, yeah. you know, uh, in fact, you know, it is weird, isn't it? I think in the war, there were lots of people who disagreed with what people were doing. I mean, there were lots of people who said we should have, um, should have resent, uh, surrendered. Uh, I know I did a radio play some time ago about the days leading up to to the um, uh, the rescue of the of the people from from the beaches, the soldiers from the beaches, and sending all the boats. And uh, uh, it was very interesting leading up to that point. And it was written by a man who'd studied all the uh, all the records of Downing Street at that time. And there were quite a number of cabinet meetings between very senior. Uh, politicians. In fact, I can't remember who. The, I think it may have been Fox or someone who was a, uh, who was a, uh, in the cabinet. And he actually sent off. Uh, I think it might be Anthony Burgess, who was turned out to be the spy eventually. Anthony Burgess went to Rome and had a meeting with a representative from Mussolini about what terms the Germans would accept our not our surrender, but a rapprochement. So basically, you know, we. We won't be involved in the war anymore, and we'll just leave you alone. So, would that right. be all right? And what what do you want us to do? You know, we will obviously supply you with, with you know, coal and oh, that sort of thing. So, we would have been under the thumb of the Germans, I think. But they, the plan was that we would have not been invaded, and and many people in the cabinet thought that was the way to go because we were basically losing yeah. the British forces and losing the war. And they said, "What we need to do is is have some sort of uh, some sort of settlement, some sort of you know a truce." And it was only Churchill really who constantly said, "No, no, 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 we can't do that. You can't, you can't surrender to a tyrant, no, because in the end he'll use it against you." And he he was sure to be right, I think. Yeah, we had every degree during the war of um, different countries who did make those kind of Faustian pacts along the way. Yeah, who then who then were either you know taken over or or they put in puppet governments who uh, who did exactly what the Germans wanted. You know, I mean, it would have been much easier for for um, for Hitler if every country had done that. You know, if Russia had basically somebody had risen up in Russia and took over the government and said, "Well, we don't want you to invade us, but we'll obviously you know be your friend." Uh, they did originally you know side with the Germans, the Russians, and then changed their mind. You know, so. Uh, it could have gone many ways, I think. We were lucky it went the way it did. Imagine being in this situation now under a tyrannical government, of a fascist tyrannical government. Oh, my word, it would be very different. Anyway, enough of that. Yeah, I can make several uh, punchlines to that that, uh, <laughs> that feed that you yeah, just gave yeah. me there, but I'll, I'll skip over it. <laughs> Excuse so, me, I've not I've not gone beyond eight o'clock at all on this whole lockdown without having a beer. So you'll have to excuse me drinking uh, rum and OJ. Uh, so we're we're good. Ah, uh, very good, very good, very good. I sometimes make it out and make it until nine o'clock. It's quite yeah. good, you know. But tonight I thought no, no, we're going to have a chat. I'll yeah. I'll have a beer. Yeah, it seems seems the gentlemanly way to do it for me. <laughs> uh, so sir, that we, we, you you've kind of already given me the answer of how you got into to like you know this idea of going into show business and going into comedy but how yeah, do you get from that kind of first kernel to to doing it how do i end up doing it well i mean again even though he'd said it to me i didn't think that it was possible i didn't come from a family of um, of actors or know any actors and mm. it seemed to me an impossible dream that you would become an actor 
it, it, I, I had no idea how to get into it. And I went to the sort of school where they weren't going to give you that sort of information. You know, they wanted us all to become bankers and uh, and civil servants. They didn't want us to go off and do frivolous things. It was pointless. So if you ever suggested it, they said, you know, you don't want to be doing that. No, 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 no. no, no it's a very no, new idea to, 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 it's a very new idea to do uh, something that you dream of doing as you're living. Now, now that's what they teach children. It is very it's a that new was concept. only ever the privilege. It was only ever the privilege of extremely wealthy people. I think that yeah. you would then go off and become a polymath or a, an artist or a poet. So the idea that a perfectly normal working class—well, uh, my parents were working class—and then I suppose by the time I, I was a lad, we were middle class because my father became a solicitor, uh, qualified as a solicitor, having come from a family of dockers, so self-educated and and night school. And then he became a solicitor and became a successful solicitor. So we were better off than, than certainly the rest of his family would have been and would have, he would have been when he was a boy. And, uh, and so I had certain privileges, but certainly not that privilege of eating, you know, the world is open to you and, and everything's been paid for and it's fine, you know. So um, it seemed that I was destined for a fairly sort of straightforward life. And my father basically suggested that I become a solicitor like him because he could arrange, that was where he had influence, you know, so he could arrange certain things for me. So he did. He arranged for me to become, uh, to work for his solicitor's firm, and I was giving articles to train as a lawyer. And then I said, well, actually, rather than do sort of five years of articles, I'd, I think I'd rather go off and do a degree in law and then come back after that. And he said, well, okay, if you want to, fine. So I, I applied for colleges and I went to Oxford and uh, studied law and while I was there I got involved in lots and lots of drama I mean a ridiculous amount of drama uh, if I tell you that I mean I think I probably did more drama than I would have done had I been a, a drama student right I, 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 ended, I added it up once while I was in Oxford for three years in those three years I did 34 different productions Wow. Which and is ridiculous, isn't it? Did you keep up with yeah. your studies enough while you were doing that to, to sort of play through? I just or? managed to hang on to I had a very good tutor, a man who, who, at the end of my first year, I did my first year, first year I worked quite hard, but I also did a lot of plays. And, and I got uh, I got a first in my first year exams. And the, the my tutor said, you could really do things here. You could, you know, if you concentrate, keep going you could end up with a first and that will open all sorts of doors for you. You don't have to be a solicitor. You could be a barrister. You could be, you know, this, this could really move you up the scale as it were, which was tempting. But at the same time, I really started to enjoy acting and I was doing all sorts as I have done my entire career. So I was doing Shakespeare. I was doing silly comedies. I was doing experimental theater. I was doing musicals. I was doing, I joined the local town theater group. So I didn't go home at Christmas. I stayed, stayed and did the Christmas production of the Oxford Playhouse with the local amateur dramatic groups. I was in pantomime. Uh, I, I then went up to Edinburgh in the summer and did the first summer I went up to Edinburgh. I did three serious plays during the day and a review in the evening. The year before I'd got up and I knew nothing about it at all. I auditioned and somebody said to me that a man was sitting there and they said, uh, he's auditioning for the review. And he said to me, would you, do you want to be in the review? And I said, uh, well, I'm not really sure what a review is. And he said, it's just sketches. It's like Monty Python. He said, can you sing? I said, I, I can sing. Yeah. He said, well, sing me something. 
So I sang um, off the top of my head. I sang I Left My Heart in San Francisco. I left my heart in San Francisco. And he said, yeah, that's good. That's good. Okay. Right now, sing it and make me laugh. So I said, uh, okay. Um, I left my heart. <laughs> nice. And he laughed. He laughed. And uh, and that was Angus Deaton. And ah. we formed up. So, and he said, what, do you want to be in the review? So we did a review together. And uh, from that moment, my well, the die was cast, as it were. Uh, I, I worked with Angus and Philip Pope, who was in that review with me, for the next, um, well, 11, 12 years. In fact, we're still working together on and off in different things. But we worked together almost exclusively for about 11, 12 years at the beginning of my career. I went off and did the occasional bit of theatre and I went off and did, you know, different television jobs. But we worked as a team for a long time. Uh, the year before us, Angus was in charge of the review. And the year before that, it was Rowan Atkinson and Richard Curtis. So I was just one year too late. <laughs> That's what I always say. <laughs> Although um, uh, Philip Pope uh, did go on to, to be in um, in some of the Blackadders, didn't he? I remember he did, and Only Fools and Horses, and lots of things in a series called Who Dares Wins, which was on yep. Channel 4 at the beginning of the early 80s. And I've worked with Phil in, in oh, uh, yeah. uh, hundreds of things, really. Oh, we oh, did yeah, Spitting yeah. Image together. Yep. Philip Pope was the, it was the musical director of Spitting Image, and uh, which led to me being uh, singing on lots of Spitting Image songs. I sang yes. on, well, I think all, nearly all of them. Uh, there was hardly a Spitting Image song that I didn't sing on in the entire uh, seven series which is very weird. And I sang the chicken song. I was going to say, you, you had got to some notoriety with one of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was uh, it was one of those strange things where we went to the, we went in for a session and uh, to record about three or four songs. I think one of them was a Michael Jackson song, uh, about him being plastic or something. And another one was a song about condoms. <laughs> and then there was this song... Uh, um, which he said, oh, this is a parody of Black Lace, Agadoo, you know, it's that sort of song. And it had been written by um, uh, Nick Newman, and uh, yeah, Nick Newman, the people who write uh, The Red Dwarf wrote the lyrics to it. Ah, I was saying, yeah, and, yeah. yeah. Grant yeah. and Naylor? Yeah. Naylor. Yeah. Naylor, Grant and Naylor. Yeah, Grant and Naylor, that's it. Doug Nick Grant Newman, and... Uh, yeah, Ian Hislop and Nick Newman used to write for it. Ian Hislop and Nick Newman wrote as a team, and, and Grant and Naylor wrote, uh, wrote as a team for Spitting Image, and they wrote the lyrics for this song. Oh. Uh, and Philip wrote the tune, and he said, well, you know, who wants to... Do you want to have a go, Mike? He said, it's just, you know, like, do a sort of Manchester accent. I said, OK, how's it going? He went, he goes... And then it's got a chorus, it it's easy. Easy. So I said, yeah, okay, yeah, fine. So we went through it once, and then he said, okay, should we record it? And we recorded it, and then that was it. And then they brought in, we recorded the backing. We all sang on the backing, and the backing had singers like um, Tessa Niles, who was uh, David Bowie's backing singer. Yep. And Annie Lennox, she sang with Annie Lennox, and she was singing on that song. <laughs> and Lance Ellington, uh, who is uh, one of the singers on Strictly Come Dancing, extraordinary singer, amazing yeah. singer, made his fortune by singing um, for an advert. He sang for Gillette. He sang, uh, Gillette, the best, best a man, man can, can get. get. That one. Yeah. Which 
ran for what twenty years. That song. yeah, that little every time they had Gillette, that's what it they had, and he made that was worldwide. He made a lot of money doing that. So these were amazing people. Uh, Kate yeah. Robbins, the very funny Kate Robbins, the comedian who I, I I did a number of television series with her on Granada Television, but uh, at that point we hadn't done that, and she um, she was singing on it, and so it was an amazing crowd of people. And I just happened to sing the lead vocal, and then I went away on holiday. And uh, and then while we were on holiday, I heard it being played in a disco, and I said, "What the hell is this being played for?" And somebody said, "Oh, it's number one, number one in England." Was it was it planned to be a release, or was it? Because I remember you had was that on the album that they released? Yeah, it yeah. wasn't. They were going to release an album, and then they said, "Well, we might as well release a single from it." And uh, and in fact, what they did because we were session singers so we'd been we'd been paid our session which was a nice fee and they said well you know we're going to release a single but you know comedy singles they don't you know we're just doing it for publicity really and uh, and so you can have your fee again if you want that's how we're going to pay you we'll pay you your fee to cover the you know the use of it yeah or if you you know if you're crazy you can have a um, you can have a very small percentage and it's really small you know we'd have to sell hundreds of thousands for you to make any money really and all these professional singers around me went yeah we'll take the money thank you very much they all took the money signed a contract and i thought well i've never i've never had a single before never you know in britain i'm going to take a punt on it you know because it was only the session fee you know now it doesn't seem that much but at the time it was good it was sort of you know it was sort of a thousand pounds which yeah. you know was a lot of money in 1987 you know and uh, it was a very nice thing to get it again for just because they were going to put a single out and uh, you know i said oh, no I'll, I'll take the percentage they went okay you know <laughs> percentage of nothing is nothing and i went yeah okay i don't care uh, and uh, then you know of course it sold about sort of about 850,000 copies which is an extraordinary amount yeah I mean number one's no single now in this country it's hardly anything I mean maybe Adele maybe one or two others actually you know where they don't sell singles anymore it's based on downloads and streaming isn't it but yeah, um, yeah. But, but actually going out and buying a record at eight over 850,000 people did that I mean, eight hundred and fifty thousand children. I have a feeling, you know, but uh, which is very unfair, isn't it? From the pockets of their parents, we all made a lot of money. <laughs> so I apologise to those people now. But uh, ever since those people who sang on that session, they've never forgiven me. They've never <laughs> forgiven me. Every time I see any of them, and I do, you, you know, it's a very uh, small world—the world of acting—and and every now and again, it can be fifteen years later, but you will bump into someone. And then they go, ah, oh, Mike, oh, hang on a minute. You took the percentage, didn't you? I, go, I did. How much did you make? How much did you make? How much? Come on, how much did you make? And I, I always say, not much, not much. I bought a house. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you bastard. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny you should say about how kind of like interlinked this world is. Because the first thing, when you, when you mentioned uh, uh, Doug Grant and Naylor, whose first name escapes me for the second. The first yeah, thing. Yeah, Rob. Rob, Rob Grant and Doug Naylor. Rob Grant and Doug Naylor, that's correct, yeah. That's it. 
But it just made me think like uh, that uh, when they were doing that, it was Chris Barry was also in Spinning Image, of course, who went on to do Red Dwarf. Barry ended up in Red Dwarf, exactly. So Red Dwarf was, you know, so they immediately thought of Chris Barry for that part because he was extremely good at it, you know. So it is that wheels within wheels as you connect with people and do different things. I mean, I've worked with, I've worked many times over my career with with the great Andy Hamilton, who's a a brilliant writer here, especially him with Guy Jenkins. You know, he's written loads and loads of fabulous things over the years. And I've recorded, I mean, I'm, I'm delighted to say that I've been in almost everything he's ever done. Yeah. He's given me a part, which I'm uh, I'm amazed. You know, and sometimes a small part, sometimes a really nice part. Uh, we, there was, we did a radio series on Radio 4 called oh, Old Harry's Game. Game, in which Andy played yeah. the devil brilliantly. And they were just fantastic scripts. And they had a, a wonderful cast. And uh, and I played me and Philip. In fact, me again, Philip Pope. Me and Philip Pope, uh, we played, and Felicity Montague. We would play all the other characters. Yeah. So they had uh, Andy playing the devil, Jimmy Mulville, who is now the managing director or the owner of Hattrick Productions. So he yeah. doesn't need to work particularly, <laughs> but he was originally a performer, and uh, and he'd worked with Andy when they were very young. So yeah. Andy got him in right at the start of the radio theory. So it's very strange to have this incredibly powerful television man turning up and doing a radio recording with you. And of course, the audience hadn't the faintest idea who he was. He was the man who hired and fired us all for the rest of the week, but just doing for that little period, we were all the same, making a show together. And uh, it, it was, um, you know, and then lovely Annette Crosby was in it for many episodes. She was just one of the greatest comedians. I love the fact that in Afterlife recently, uh, she had one little tiny appearance in it. And anybody who's seen the second series of Afterlife, it is the most memorable moment in the whole thing. And once again, she showed the nation that she's one of the great comic actresses of of our generation. She is. We're very lucky to have had her. You know, her daughter, I've worked with her daughter, Selena, uh, on a number of things. She's in Benidorm. In Benidorm, she plays the drunken, um, sister of Johnny Vegas, and right. uh, and she's really brilliant at it. And in fact, when you know she's Annette's daughter, you can hear it. They have a very similar accent, a very similar voice, but you wouldn't know it otherwise. She doesn't push it or anything, doesn't promote yeah. it that way. But she's again, have she's inherited her, her mother's skills. She is a fantastic comedian you know, and actress. I mean, I think that actually. There's no real difference. There's no difference between acting comedy and acting acting. I think, you know, that um, because you you have to be aware of what effect something is going to have on an audience. So to to be aware that something is going to make an audience laugh is the same awareness that you would have if you knew that it was going to make an audience cry, or it was going to make an audience be shocked. So in a way, you're not doing these things by accident when you do them. You know, you have a fair idea of what's going, what it's going to have as an effect on an audience, or you hope. Uh, and so, again, with comedy, you will hope that delivering something, but it's no good delivering something and being showing that you're aware that you're doing it. If, for example, I'm playing a villain and I show I'm aware of being a villain, then I'm a pantomime baddie. I'm, yeah. you know, I'm twirling my moustache, going ha ha ha. It's no good. The 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 greatest villains are um, traditionally, uh, as far as acting is concerned, the greatest villains are the nicest people. 
the people who play the best villains, the people that everybody else says, oh, he's horrible. My mother-in-law, for example, would say, oh, he's horrible. He's a horrible, horrible man. I hate him. And you go, no, he's, he's really lovely, actually. He's acting. Uh, you see, he's not really like that. He's pretending, and he's really good at it. And I remember reading a book by Humphrey Bogart about uh, where it was an autobiography, and he talked about the great villains, the great baddies of his time, uh, Sidney Greenstreet and Peter Lorre, people like that, who could play really, really awful people, nasty and vicious and you know, loathsome people. And he said they were always the most charming, kind, thoughtful people. And he said he'd asked Peter Lorre why he thought that people who could play a, a villain were often so nice. And Peter Lorre had said, well, because we know how much it would hurt. And I, I think that's a, an amazing insight into how to play a baddie, as it were, is that mm. you don't have to do much to hurt people. You don't have to do much to frighten people. You can just be quiet. You just sit and stare at someone. And it's really frightening because people don't do it. They don't. So if I'm in a situation where I know somebody's powerful and I walk into a room and they say, sit down, and they just look at me, I'm going to sweat. I'm going to start to sweat. They don't have to, you know, show they're nasty. They just have to be complete. And, and in a way, the calmer they are, the more frightened you be. And I think that all the great villains, that's what they do. They apply that skill because that thing of knowing how much it would hurt. We all know, anybody who's at all sensitive knows how much it hurts to be slighted, yeah. to uh, to be talking or to be at a party talking to someone. And then they see someone more important as far as they're concerned. And they just absolutely push you aside and walk away from you. And you're left in this room feeling like an idiot, feeling as if you, you know, as if the whole world has, has, has abandoned you. And it's incredibly painful and very hurtful. So um, the people who do that to you, they, they're not really aware that they're doing it, I think. Otherwise, they wouldn't. They just wouldn't do it. Nobody yeah. would behave like that if they knew the effect of it. But the people who do know the effect of it, if they're then asked to act something, they say, oh, I know exactly how to do this because I've been hurt many times and I know exactly what it is and I've been frightened. I know what these people do. They're just yeah. not interested. They don't care. They show no emotion. And uh, that's the really frightening thing, I think. And what uh, do you what so, do you think of the uh, kind of like, there seems to be a new approach as well, something which uh, I think you're allowed to do more in dramas nowadays, of coming from a position of empathy for the villain. Like, you know, obviously the actors always had to have that in their head, but now they can, yeah. they're, they're written a lot more complexly to, you know, write yeah, I, I, I wonder if it is tr true that it's, um, it, it's, it's new. I mean, I think if you think about it, they wouldn't have made them necessarily the villain. But but you do have empathy, for example, in Robin of Sherwood. Was that film? Who was a fantastic actor? The actor who died recently. Alan Rickman. Who was also in Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Alan Rickman in, in that film. He's the man you really like. He's a he's a monster, <laughs> but he's the man you really like. You know, Robin. Yeah, he's all right. <laughs> You know, they're going to be all right. They're a bit lovey dovey. But Alan Rickman, that's the man. You sort of go, oh, God, he's great. But he's it, just great. I think that's in his performance. That, I mean, like, uh, no one else could cancel Christmas in the way he does. That would look so <laughs> ridiculous if not delivered so well. No. Oh, God, he's a, he was a... What an extraordinary actor he was. 
And uh, what's, uh, what makes somebody extraordinary, I think, is, is that you can't think of anybody else who's like him. I can't think of another actor who would, in a way, would have got away with doing what he did in yeah. Robin of Sherwood. It's an enormous performance. It's colossal. And in fact, he was famous for his subtlety. He was famous for his, you know, I mean, if you look at Harry Potter, he could have been so much bigger. Hmm. But the role is very contained, very small and very, all the threat is, as I say, in stillness and quiet. And, and you know, he doesn't shout and scream. It's all in, it's all, you know what I can do to you. And he doesn't have to do anything. And yet, Robin of Sherwood, there he is. Ah, mother! It's extraordinary. And yet it really works. You really believe this man. You believe who he is. And you believe that that's what, that's what the Sheriff of Nottingham was like. It's fantastic that he could do those two extremes, I think, and pull them both off. They're incredibly difficult to do. There, there was actually, there's actually one of your performances I did want to bring up, and it's it's a very random one to bring up, I suppose, but it's just one which I particularly stuck in my mind, especially when I was looking through your uh, IMDb, picking up things to talk about. <laughs> right, yeah. And it, it was when you were in EastEnders for two episodes, and you were playing the uh, priest who, uh, uh, Dot Brown or Dot um, Cotton. Yeah, no, I've never, I've never seen it. I never saw it. There I mean, a, I did it. It, it was just. I never saw it. It was basically like uh, he, she, she was kind of confessing to you that she was responsible yeah. for assisted suicide for Ethel, and she it was, basically helped her to die. Yeah, mm. and it was such yeah, a just. No, well, yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't put that down to me. Again, that's it, it's a it's a need in those six situations uh, for stillness. I think mm. for for doing very little and actually letting the words do the work. And you know, June Brown is a. You know, I mean, in many ways, it's a shame that she's only become famous because of EastEnders, because she really is a, a very skilled actress. Yeah. You know, to carry off that part for so long and to keep it going and make us all believe it so long, it shows how good she is, I think. You know, and she's she will do it in many ways. She paid me a she paid me a, a, a very high compliment on that on that thing. I, I had to do a very difficult scene. And he said, it's, it's very difficult to go into something that big when you're only in it for a bit. You come in and do it, and it can be quite overwhelming to be surrounded by, you know, or to be act working with these other people. You feel that you need to do a lot. You need to prove yourself. Whereas, um, whereas I did the very first scene that I did with her was just sitting, talking about, you know, Ethel being ill and, and she uh, getting upset and me sort of saying, well, you know, I mean, she'll be at peace. And and uh, and after it, she said, oh, she says, it's lovely to work with an actor who knows he doesn't have to try so hard. And I said, oh, well, thank you very much. I was a bit frightened. She said, well, it didn't look like it. And I, I, I've always remembered that as a, a real compliment. You know, one of the most difficult things, scenes I've ever had to do was was the burial of Ethel. Uh, because it was a huge scene. And to come into that, having only done, you know, a few weeks on it, uh, and nearly all of it with, with June, you know, hardly any of it with anybody else. And, you know, one or two characters came into it, but it wasn't really, it was just me and her. And, uh, and then suddenly you're in this church with hundreds of extras and a hearse turning up. And... Everybody, everybody in EastEnders sitting in the congregation. Uh, 
it good or bad, whatever you think of them, and some are better than others. I will mm-hmm. say that here. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, uh, they are still these this extraordinary crowd of people. To have them all together in one room was uh, was very strange. And we started with me giving my, as it were, the oration for Ethel's death, which was seven pages long. Now, as far as EastEnders is concerned, I think the director said that he couldn't remember a seven-page scene uh, up to that point. Just seven pages with no break, just me speaking on my own. Uh, it's you know it's quite narrow because it has directions and all sorts of stuff in the script. So it's not it doesn't it's not like seven pages of a book, but it was a lot of words. It was a good six or seven minute scene. And I also knew because of, I'd done a lot of television, and I knew that basically I was not the important person in that scene, that I would be the voice of that scene, but that actually it was the reaction of the audience or the reaction of the congregation that yeah. people would want to see. So I also knew that although they were filming me doing this speech, for much of it when it went out, I wouldn't be on screen. There would be shots of people crying and shots of people looking sad and shots of people reacting to what I was saying. But also, but I did want to get the speech right. So, um, so I learned it very well, which is the only thing you can do as an actor is to be in control of your lines, to know your lines. If you know your lines, then you're, you're, it's a good way to start. And some actors, sometimes you turn up people are really not good on their lines. They've not really put the effort in and it, and they suffer as a result. It's a mistake that, you know, I've seen young actors make thinking, well, we do this every day. I'll just learn it on the, on the go. You know, we've got lots of rehearsals and then suddenly you don't have lots of rehearsals. Suddenly they need to do it and you don't really know your lines. And that's a, it's a big mistake. So I'd learned this incredibly well. And he said, uh, look, we've got a, a lectern. You can put the script on it and read it if you like. And I said, no, no, I, well, I, I, I'll use the lectern, but I've learnt it. And he said, oh, great, good, good. And then they started looking at the shot. And then somebody said, that lectern's really spoiling the light. Can you get rid of it? So it was taken away. So had I relied on the fact that I was going to have the words in front of me, I would have been buggered, as they say. Yeah. And, uh, and so knowing the lines were absolutely crucial. And then I, we did about, they had cameras all over the place, so they did it very quickly. We did about, went through it about three or four times. Uh, I managed to go through it without making a mistake and did it the way I wanted to do it. And at the end of it, the director said to me, are you happy with that? And I said, yeah, if you're happy, I'm happy. He said, no, I thought it was great, thanks. And I said, I know I, you're not going to use most of it. He said, well, I know what it's like. And anyway, then they, we have a, a great big hours gap and then they turn the thing around and then they film the others and I had to stand there and do it probably about 50 times while they'd shots of you know the butcher family and shots of Pat and shots of everybody else and people crying and all tracking in and out and I thought I'm not, nobody's gonna even know this is me but uh, that's sort of the job really but it was a it was a very daunting day and I was really glad that I'd had the experience to know that the way to get through those days is to be prepared, is to be ready. Yeah. You know? So there we are. Well, to get to something, uh, well, which I, I, I never know what it's going to have been like on the scene, but but something which came across as a lot lighter was Only Fools and Horses. It's another kind of uh, classic to go into. Oh, well, it yes. is a classic. Uh, it was probably, I mean, I've had very many lovely jobs 
I have to say, and uh, many of them have been fantastic fun. But I've never, ever been in a show where, well, to put it into context, by the time I did Only Fools and Horses, they were in the seventh series of it, and it was huge. It was absolutely huge. It was the programme. It was the programme that everybody watched, everybody talked about it. They were paying them a lot of money, you know, compared to other programmes. By then, their their wages had gone through the roof because they were such enormous stars. Yeah. They could have, if they wanted, they could have been very offhand with us. If they'd wanted to, and we would have gone, yeah, I know, you know, people come, people go. You've got a lot to think about. You've got all these lines to learn. I, I, I get it, you know. Fine, nice to meet you. Thank you very much. And you would have sat aside and then done your bit and then gone. And we turned up and David Jason and Nick Lindhurst were incredibly welcoming. Hey, all right, come in here. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know so-and-so, don't you? Oh, brilliant. Oh, great. Yeah, good. Well, it's lovely to have you on the board. Oh, what a shame you're not doing more. Only one episode. Oh, it's a funny episode, don't it? It's brilliant. Right, come on, let's do a read. Let's read. You want to go a coffee? Lovely. All right. Yeah, good. It was just, oh, my word, this is so lovely. And then we finished, and then they, we sort of you block through, we read through, and then uh, they said, okay, it's lunch. And David said, right, lunch, come and uh, it's on me. Come and I'll take you upstairs. Uh, upstairs meant we were in the North Acton rehearsal rooms, which are no longer there, I'm, I'm proud to, sad to say. It's very sad that they're gone. But the North Acton rehearsal rooms was a, an eight-story concrete building, which had... Uh, I don't know how to demonstrate this. It had a rehearsal room. So if you look at a floor plan, right. you've got a rehearsal room there, you've got a rehearsal room there, and you've got a rehearsal room there, and a corridor here with stairs going up and it lifts. Yeah. And so you had three large rehearsal rooms on every floor, and the top floor was a canteen. So at lunchtime, which was always at one o'clock for everybody, at one o'clock, you went and lined up in the canteen at the top of this thing with everybody else who was rehearsing in those buildings. And if you took seven floors, that's 21 productions were in rehearsal from top dramas, soaps, all the comedy shows, just unbelievable. All the children's television shows, everything was being rehearsed there. So this, this room was full of the great and the good from BBC television at that time. It was absolutely fantastic. And every time I ever went to North Acton, I couldn't wait for lunch because you'd never know who's going to be. It's just extraordinary people. Extraordinary. I saw John Gilgood in there once wow. you know, having lunch. I know. Unbelievable. Olivier. I actually, I saw Lawrence Olivier. He was rehearsing something for the BBC and there he was sitting at a table having lunch with everybody else. Anyway, so we played, and David Jason sat us all at the same table. We had a roar, a time. It was a fantastic, raucous laughter coming from our table. Everybody looking over as if they were jealous that they weren't in Only Fools and Horses, and, and they, sh they should have been jealous. It was brilliant fun. We played terrible games. He played one game, I remember, called Look Away, which is where uh, he said, right, we have to look around the room. He said, you find the most famous person here. But, you know, obviously not me. I am obviously the most famous person here, but the second most famous person here. So we went, okay. He said, go on, Mike, you, you choose. So and this is an example. This is the first lunchtime. He knew my name. It would be so easy not to know my name. You know, there's me, Gina Bellman, uh, Nick, uh, the director, Tony Selby, and, and uh, Gareth Gwenin, who was the producer, uh, and David. 
and he said, come on, Mike, you choose. And I went, okay, um, Nigel Hawthorne, who was in, yes, Prime Minister yeah, yeah, yeah. at the time. Amazing. And they were rehearsing that up there. So it was him and Paul Eddington and the other oh. members of the car sitting at their table. Uh, and he said, right, okay, so what we have to do is, you know, very gently, subtly over the time, you know, subtly like me, act subtly like I do. He said, we, we, <laughs> we just sort of look over at him and go, just like that, just, you know, you go, right, one at a time. And he said, nobody knows Nigel Hawthorne, do they? And we no, don't know him. He went, okay, good. He said, just catch his eye and then go, right, and go back to your food. And we'll do it over the course of lunch until he finally breaks and we'll break him. He said, what he does, we break him to the point where he goes, even though he doesn't know us, we'll get him to go, Hello. <laughs> and when he does that, we all look past him as if we were waving to someone else. <laughs> isn't, isn't that wicked? It's great. It's so cruel. Genius. <laughs> I know. So that's what we did. We goaded Nigel Hawthorne through the whole lunchtime. You know, just, um, no, Nigel. You know what I mean? Just <laughs> eventually he went, uh, Hello. Uh, and we all went, and you saw him out of the corner of your eye crumble. He'd just go, hoping that nobody had seen him look so stupid. It was, oh, it's terrible, like a schoolboy. We were like schoolboys. It was wonderful. And wonderful I fun. I don't know what he's like in, or was like in real life, go, go rest him, of course. But um, Nigel Hawthorne didn't, he, he he looked like someone you wouldn't want to mess shy about man, with. I, think. I, I did, I've worked with Nigel Hawthorne, and he was a very shy, quiet man, you know, and very sort of kept himself to himself so to do that so he was a good choice really to break him to get him yeah. to acknowledge people he didn't know you know it's sort of that do i know them i know who they are but i don't think i've worked with them perhaps i have i've forgotten about it and that does happen that goes through your mind you you often see other actors often if i'm walking down the street i see another actor we both say hello to each other yeah because we both sort of recognize each other and then afterwards we think do we i don't think i've ever worked with him. i've never <laughs> met him before you know, and sometimes people will say, "All right, Mike," and I go, "Oh yeah." <laughs> I did it once. With, did it once with John Cleese. It was bizarre. <laughs> Walking down the street, I saw John Cleese. I went, "Hi, John." He went, "Oh, mate." All right, I walked past, <laughs> and after something, I don't know John Cleese. <laughs> and then a few weeks later, strangely enough, I had an audition for um, for the for uh, Fish Called Wonder for a oh, part in that, wow. and I had to go to his house. Uh, a house that is now owned by Jimmy Mulville. There we are, circles within circles. And uh, uh, But Jimmy also bought the house, the house next door. There we are, knocked them together. Anyway, uh, yes, he had this... I went to his house, he was very friendly, and I said, we've, we've met. And he said, really? I said, well, sort of, <laughs> in the street. Uh, I, I said hello to you the other day, and you said hello back. He went, oh, God, I'm always doing that. <laughs> I do that. You look at people, you think, I've seen him on the telly. Isn't that weird? Oh, there's something wonderful John to know Cleese that John Cleese gets that. Good to know that John Cleese has seen me on the telly. That was I was very excited. Yeah, very good acclaim. <laughs> uh, well, it, it sort of does bring us on to, to one of the other things, which of course we have to talk about. It's KYTV. That was like a phenomenal show. Uh, that was an amazing. It was. Show. I'm uh, very very proud of KYTV because we'd done a lot of radio series. We did seven radio series as, as radioactive yeah and we had basically one 
won every award you could win, really, you know, and, and uh, so it was one of the regarded as one of the best radio series of the 80s, I think, on Radio 4. Uh, but there was a policy at the time that they changed their mind. Up until that point, there was almost like a factory where you did something on radio, and if it worked, you transferred it to television. Yeah. But there, there was a change in, in, in control of the BBC, and they decided that they didn't want to do this anymore. It was old-fashioned. They should be finding their own comedy and not just using Radio 4 as a feeder station. And so they resisted putting us on for a long, long time. And actually, that may be, have been to our benefit. I think if we'd gone, if we'd done two or three radio series and then done a television series, it would have been not very good. But by the time we actually got to do it, uh, we'd all done lots of television. So we were quite experienced at it. And we had a great bank of very good jokes that we could pilfer from the radio before the television. And we also realised, of course, that as it was a television thing, we needed to be more visual. So we, we understood that. We couldn't just do a radio show on the telly. So lots of things were in our favour, I think, in that way. And also we had in the cast Jeffrey Perkins, uh, who was and you know is to this day one of the great television producers that this country has ever produced. His list of work is quite extraordinary from, you know, Spitting Image he produced and uh, uh, Father Ted and uh, 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 look him up, look him up. It's yeah. unbelievable that what Jeffrey Perkins was involved in uh, when he died, Jeffrey, it was a, sent a shockwave through the acting profession. And uh, uh, and two days after he died, man called Andre Tosinski, whose daughter I, introduced, I talked to the other week on my podcast, Anna, she works for QI. She's one of the QILs. Oh, she's on a wonderful podcast. No Such Thing yeah. as a Fish podcast. She's in No Such Thing as a Fish. Which her father, Andre, is uh, is the producer of Matilda. So the, the musical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Tim Minchin. You know, she comes from a good dynasty. Yeah. But uh, uh, he he said, had been a lifelong friend of Jeffrey's and said, look, I think we all need to get together somehow to you know deal with this because we're so sudden just collapsed in the street and died uh, of a thing called, it turned out, a thing called sudden death syndrome. Extraordinary. Something you carry with you for life and then you suddenly stop. And that's what happened. Uh, so two days afterwards, the um, Drury Lane Theatre, they cancelled the show for that night and we had a gathering at Drury Lane Theatre. Uh, and it just, the word went out, if you knew Jeffrey, I'll work with him and you want to come to this thing, we're going to gather together and have drinks. And there were, I've, I don't know, over a thousand people turned up. And uh, un, I mean, in that room, if that room had exploded, you would have destroyed British comedy. It was full of everybody who'd ever been anybody in British comedy. It was unbelievable. Jeffrey goes back to, uh, Jeffrey was the man who, who, who came up with the idea for, um, uh, uh, sorry, I haven't a clue. The, uh, oh, the game they play. Wow! Oh, oh, oh yeah. sorry. I thought you meant the the, the whole. Well, he, he, a lot of the games they play in in. Uh, sorry, I haven't a clue. Jeffrey devised when he was a producer. Oh, amazing. So, so he, uh, uh, I can't, I can't for the life of me remember what the name of the game is where oh. they 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 just name different streets. And Mornington Crescent. With yeah, Mornington Crescent. Oh. He thought of Mornington Crescent. It's an absurd idea. That alone. So you just say names to streets and pretend it's a game. 
It's yeah. a brilliant idea, but it's 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 ridiculous, and that's what Jeffrey was like. He came up with the most astonishing things. The writers of Father Graham Lynham, who wrote Father Ted, and you know they they absolutely to this day will say that they would never have made Father Ted had Jeffrey not been involved in it. They wanted to make it like a sort of a fly on the wall documentary about Irish priests and mock them, take you know make them look stupid. So they wanted, to, in a way, to do an office about Irish priests, which was right. the thing that they thought was funny. And Jeffrey said, "No, no, no, no! You can't! No, you can't do that! No, no! We must love these people. We must fall in love with them." And he was, and Graham went away, and they'd written the script, and they went away and rewrote it, and rewrote it with heart, and you know, and made and made it what it was, which was a work of genius. But he always says that he would never have made it if Jeffrey hadn't produced it. Uh, so uh, he was an extraordinary man, Jeffrey Perkins, a most delightful, wonderful, funny man, terrible actor, really terrible <laughs> actor. But he had something about him when he did comedy that was uh, extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. He could make you roar with laughter, and we had such fun together. We toured together all over the country. We went to Australia several times and did tours there. We, we holidayed together. It was always in the end, if you were ever going to be sitting at a lunch table crying with laughter, it would have been Jeffrey who would have induced it. He was the most delightful, wonderful man. To, to know that, yeah. um, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue, and Father Ted have common DNA as well. I, I, I didn't it's know that. That's, when you look incredible. at it, if you look at it, there's a, there's a, there's a through line with Jeffrey. It's that thing of, you know, Ben Elton always says that he would never have been a star. When he turned up for Saturday Live and Jeffrey was producing it, he would turn up with his monologue and it would be 15 minutes long and a great rambling rant. And he would give it to Jeffrey. Jeffrey would take it away for 15 minutes, put big lines for it, cut bits out, move it around and give him back a, a five minute monologue that was brilliant. It was extraordinary at knowing what was the right thing to do and when to be funny and when to not be funny and uh, uh, there are so many people, Harry Enfield, all say they, they, they owe their career to to, um, to Jeffrey. I mean, so many people do say that, that he was the person who backed them in the first place, you know, and, and saw that they, they had the, the potential. So it's very rare now for somebody to be uh, a completely unknown person and to be given the responsibility of taking on a really big role. That doesn't happen so often. But yeah. it, luckily, Jeffrey was in a position to say, no, I, this is the person I want, Ben Chaplin, who, uh, who is a really fine actor and has gone off and made a great career in America and then come back and, and done some wonderful things. He was in that marvellous thing with Samantha Janus. Or Game on. Samantha Janus. Game on. It's the first Game thing on. I think of Game when on. you say his name. Jeffrey was, Jeffrey was the producer of Game On. And, uh, and he, uh, he knew he wanted Ben to play the part. And... Uh, Ben was really a, a rising star. Then suddenly got a job and said, look, I can't, I won't be able to do it for nine months. So you better find someone else. And it was all scheduled to go ahead. And Jeffrey said, okay, well, we'll wait. So they put it off for nine months, waiting for Ben Chaplin to come back. And then they did it. And it, it was, you know, it was the right decision. He was, he was fantastic. And I mean, Neil, Neil, Neil Sleet, isn't it? Who, um, who took over from him, which yeah. was, again, he's a fantastic, fantastic actor. But, uh, you know, that first series, I don't think anybody could have carried that off like Ben Chaplin did. 
it was such a weird idea, yeah. such a strange thing that the man who was, again, you say that, that link there, the man who is your hero, the man you're supposed to love and, and be the hero is the weakest, is the man who yeah. in every other way seems like a god, but he can't leave the house. I mean, I, I, okay. nothing against Neil Sleep, but I think there was something about the way Ben Chapman played that in the first series, which had a uh, darker tone almost, and it's like it was a real, real tortured yeah. kind of performance for a very... Silly You're comedy. absolutely right. I'm sure that's what Jeffrey saw in it. You know, I mean, and I've, I've spoken to Ben Chaplin about it, and he said, never quite understood what he said. I think, you know, it is that. It's that he, there was something weird about it. Hmm. Uh, so you laughed at it and then thought, oh, oh, this is strange. This is and, and again, you know, that there's a fascination in that. You know, when you laugh at the, the butchers in, in League of Gentlemen, just going, yeah. offering people special stuff. But they never tell you what it is. They never yeah. tell you. No. They never, the whole thing goes on and on and on, you know, special stuff. And you, it makes you laugh. Now, why? Because what they're suggesting is that it's human flesh. Yeah. I mean, the, the suggestion is, I think the inference is, that these people are killing people and, and serving them as mints. And it's funny. Why yeah. is that yeah. funny? I, I mean, well, I, I mean, Mark Mark Gators is another one of these performers where it's like it's uh, the line between um, serious drama and uh, outrageous comedy is so paper thin with his performances. Absolutely, absolutely. Whatever, as far as he's concerned, as far as I'm concerned, there is no line. There is yeah. no line between those two things. That in fact, they're just you are just acting, and I think if you act them well, they'll be good. So if you believe, you can't do comedy without believing it. And you can't do drama without believing it. And you have to believe the situation you're in. You have to convince the audience that you believe at least. You know, so you have to commit yourself to it. And and that is what will make something funny. It is much funnier if someone is genuinely saying, I love, I, but I love you. I love you. And that is moving or funny. Either way, depending on the situation, you're either moved by it, by a man crying, and a man crying and telling someone how much they love them, or you're laughing at him because you know it's absurd. You know, and the, the performance is the same. Yeah. Um, that's, that's my... No, no, no. It's, I mean, something which I did want to, though, uh, touch upon with the idea of KYTV. I, uh, yeah. I, I think that would be right for a remake now. I, I think, whereas it was so brilliant <laughs> about think... the satire of satellite TV at the time, the way yeah. TV has become even more absurd, even bigger, even, you know... Well, yes. I mean, we, we were constantly um, beaten by the actual product. I mean, every time we <laughs> thought of something ridiculous, uh, you know, uh, in fact, if you look through KYTV, which I don't think has ever been repeated, it's very no. weird that they never repeated it. The third series we're very proud of. I mean, I think it's a really, really good series. Uh, it's, it's really... Uh, uh, really well made, full of great jokes and really good performances, I think. So we're very proud of that, particularly episodes like the um, the Fly on the Wall documentary, which I think was, uh, you know, we made that before all sorts. We made that before people like us. We made that before uh, The Office, and it's very of that style. And so it was well, well in advance of those things. It wasn't, uh, up until that point, there had only been Fly on the Wall documentaries. Nobody had made a funny Fly on the Wall documentary. Yeah. So we were the first, I think, to do that. And uh, and that's something to be very proud of, because in a way that spawned. I'm not sure that they would have seen it and thought, yeah, we can do that. But it was the first attempt at doing that thing of being funny whilst being serious or, in fact, being natural, trying to be look like real people, natural people, and be funny. 
uh, that it wasn't something that people did at that time. So it's a very ahead of, ahead of its time. Yeah. And at the same time, the whole sort of um, the Charles Dickens parody, I think, is one of my favourite episodes. It's uh, it's 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 extraordinary. We nearly blew the whole budget for the series on that one episode, you know. So everything else had to be done cheaply. But um, it's a great it's a great episode. If you have not if you've not seen it, go back and look yeah. at it. I'm very proud of it. And by then we'd all really we'd really mastered I think performing on television and performing in those things so actually I'm really pleased every time I ever get to look at it every now and again somebody will put it up on Facebook or something and I can I, I watch a bit now I end up watching the whole thing it's like oh god I forgot that and that was really good oh god I'm good at I did that really well <laughs> you know I I, I'm a, I don't often watch myself so I'm sort of taken aback if I think oh well done blimey that's good you know I sort of, in my memory, I wasn't that good. And then every now and again, I watch it and think, actually, I was all right. I was all right. I was <laughs> on my own there. Good. Yeah, so that's pleasing. But yeah, I don't know whether you could do it now because we did lots of, we came up with lots of silly ideas. You know, um, we had uh, Topless Darts, we did, which was, uh, we suggested, and tonight on the sports channel is Topless Darts. And then we just had a lot of fat men without shirts on. You know, uh, but, so that was our idea of topless darts, and uh, and which uh, made me laugh a lot. Yeah. And then we we had and and tonight competitive caravanning, and it's just a shot of a caravan crashing, and you know. So, but uh, but then of course they did that on on Top Gear. They yeah, did uh, well, Channel Five did topless darts. They just went a slightly different way with I, it. It's right. We did. We had lots of program ideas. The one that I've always been disappointed that they've never done. My absolutely favourite, uh, I think it's probably my favourite thing. Now, it's not my favourite joke. My favourite joke was the thing that Jeffrey wrote for me as a character called Martin Brown in it. But basically, we were, it was sort of a challenge Annika thing. And we were, and it was a shot of me in the middle of a field. And they said, where are you, Martin? I said, I'm in the middle of a the field. They said, okay, right. Um, so is anything you wear? I said, there's a gate. They said, okay, we'll climb over the gate and, and see what's on the other side. Okay, okay, climb over the gate. I said, no, it's nothing. He said, all right, we'll climb back over the gate then. So I climbed back over the gate. And he said, uh, no, actually, sorry, 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 you do need to go the other way. Climb back over. And at that point, the camera pulled out and it's just a gate. There is no fence. It's a gate in the middle of a field, a huge field, and just a gate. And I'm climbing back and forth over it. That was a very Jeffrey joke. That's the sort of joke that he wrote. Absolutely absurd, but very funny. I remember the time just we had to do it. It took a, a long time to film it because we all kept laughing at the absurdity of it. So ridiculous. No, but um, yeah, great, great fun. It was it was brilliant to do, and we won. We won Montreux and everything. We had one of those famous BBC meetings afterwards where they threw a party for us with warm uh, prosecco and some nibbles and um and i think the year before or two years before uh hale and pace had won the montreux festival uh with their show for itv and they'd been rewarded with a 10-year contract and enormous amounts of money because itv was so pleased to have won the comedy festival you know this television festival huge television festivals programs from all over europe put into this thing and if you win it you're basically the regarded as the best television program in Europe. So it was an amazing thing to get. Then we won it. And the BBC, then I remember the head of the BBC putting his arm around me and saying, you're safe with the BBC now, my boy. Uh, and two weeks later, they cancelled the series, the fourth series. And I didn't work for the BBC for five years. 
so, so much for loyalty, yeah. honestly. And they were, but you know, understandable because we'd done three series, they were very good, but they had on the hour lined up and they didn't want to do two television parodies. Now, if you'd asked me which one would I make uh, at the time, I would have said, well, we're funny, but on the hour, come on, Chris Morris, Dude McKagan, Rebecca Front, Steve Coogan, Patrick yeah. Marber. These people are geniuses. They're going to be extraordinary. Of course you put them on the television. We all knew that they were going to, you know, I had, uh, I had dinner with Patrick Marber. We did uh, an English language uh, training film together before he was huge. And uh, it was me, Robert Bathurst, Janine Davitsky, uh, and Rebecca Front, and we all sat and had a, an indie meal together. And Patrick Barber said, "So, what's what's your plan for your career, Mike?" And I said, "Sorry." He said, "What's the plan for your career?" I said, "I, I don't have a plan. Keep working. That's it." And he went, "Oh, you've got to have a plan." I said, "What's your plan?" He said, "Well, we're going to do this, you know, uh, on the hour on the radio. We're going to do that." And actually, there's a character in it called uh, that Steve does. A sort of a, a sort of a silly sort of sports commentator, you know, jock uh, called uh, Alan Partridge, and I think we can get a spin-off series of that. That's it's really good. So we do that, but then I uh, think then we we'll transfer it to the television, and then when the television thing takes off, uh, and then I think probably Partridge will be the thing that will really work. We'll, we'll make that really big, and I'm happy to write that, and then um, I'll be writing on that, and then then that will open up the doors for me to write for theatre, which is what I really want to do. We write plays, so I mean I'll get the plays on. And once those plays are, are successful, I can write films. And then, of course, I'll, you know, having if you had successful plays and films, you can direct them yourself. So uh, I'll end up as a film director. And we all went, yeah, good luck with that, Patrick. And yeah. that's exactly what he did. It's wow. exactly what he did. It's amazing, isn't it? That's Babe Ruth pointing to the stands, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's unbel- he knew exactly where he was going. He knew exactly how he was going to do it. He'd worked it out. That he did That's do it. Astounding. So, so well done him. I mean, I wish I'd had a plan. I had no plan at all. I but in fact, I look back on it now and go, I can't believe the number of times I should have gone, oh, this is really good. I'll stick with this or I'll stay with this person. We'll, we'll work together on this thing, yeah. People have said to me, we should write together, Mike. I go, yeah, yeah, actually the kids are going to, I'm going, it's bath time. I should go home. I don't know. For someone who's winging it, you're doing all right, though, I have to say, sir. Uh, you're not I, doing I bad. Right. Not I'm doing amazed, bad. you know. I mean, yeah, I am. I am. But I have absolutely paid no attention to it at all. But you know what? I made I, no I, real effort apart just, from the work. It might just be me, but like the, the people who've got the most interesting careers seem to be the ones who've, who've winged it. Like there's someone who I spoke to a few weeks back who's a, a guy called Paul Haggis. He, um, yeah, I know Paul Haggis, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he's, he's directed, uh, like written for Bond and uh, for uh, Oscar winning yeah. films, everything. And he called him, he, he, he himself described himself as an idiot for uh, having just like not gone the way that people would have expected him to. And I said, well, if you're an idiot, then please don't ever stop being an idiot because you're doing pretty well at yeah, it. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's, it's... yeah, yeah, yeah. It's possible, isn't it? I, mean, I, don't know, I think um, I've, I've been lucky. I was I, I had a very good start to my career. Uh, you know, it launched me into all sorts of things. It also meant that very early in my career, which is very untrue for a lot of actors, uh, I earned good money. So in a way, I was able to sort of set myself up it meant that I, uh, I, I had that pressure was taken off me. I mean, obviously, I earn, I'm not a millionaire, you know. Well, I am, but <laughs> but only because I've got the house. But I bought this house with advertising money and uh, you know 
and the chickens off and things yeah. like that. You know, yeah. fortuitous things, things that you go. I did do a lot of adverts, a lot of adverts. I eventually ended up being a man who, who lectured people who wrote and directed adverts. They used to call me to give them lectures. And I was at the lecture by saying, so how many adverts have you made? Anybody made 10? 10, great. How many have you made? Anybody made 20? 20 adverts, come on. And people, and I say, come on, all right, 50. Anybody here made 50 commercials in their time? And, you know, you get one cocky bloke at the back, the old sort of managing director of things, said, yeah, I've done 50. I said, right, I've done 230. And it used to silence the room. I had a period of about 20 years where I was doing, you know, ten, more than 10 commercials a year. And, you know, the voiceovers for commercials and things, so it was ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous period of my life, just absurd. And it, so, um, you don't really have to be lucky when you're just falling into those. I've had the right sort of face. I've got a very normal looking face, I think. So, you know, slightly good looking when I was young, you know, and uh, it was enough. I looked like people's husbands or the, what they imagined people's husbands to look like. Yeah. <laughs> or someone's dad, you know, it was fine. So it worked for me. I had all those things. And, uh, you know, I, I don't do many commercials now. I don't do, I'm not in that world anymore, particularly. Uh, which I think is very easy to drop out of it. I, I, I became, in a way, too, I think, flippant with it. I, I sort of expected it to just carry on. I think you do have to work at these things. But I don't miss it. I don't miss doing it. Because uh, you would put a lot of work, a lot of effort into making something that was 30 seconds really good. I would. I would try. I was always suggesting things. And, and in fact, there are a lot of commercials that I made over the years particularly radio commercials that I, to a large extent, wrote myself, you know, and then other people would uh, take the credit. And the, you know, the, the creatives, as they so, <laughs> so subtly and, and shyly call themselves, I'm a creative. Oh, are you a creative? Wow, what have you created? Adverts. You created an advert. Don't you mean you copied somebody to make an ad? You know, you're a, I, I say you're a plagiarist. You're not a creative. <laughs> they, they, you know, they would look at the latest thing on telly and then just copy it. But then, and enough of me and advertising. It paid for a lot of things and a lot of very lovely holidays, so I'm not complaining about it at all. Mm -hmm. And I had enormous fun. And all through a period when, uh, when in fact, you know, the world of advertising, I think, is, is really difficult now. A lot of actors, most actors, normal actors, survive entirely on those things. So uh, at a time like this when... Because you don't, most actors don't get paid very well for doing theatre. You don't get paid terribly well anymore, really, for doing television. It's, you know, only if you're famous. If you're successful, you get paid very well. But if you're not, the fees have gone down and down and down. So young actors are really finding it hard to make a living. It's really difficult. I don't know how, how they survive, really. Uh, you know, I, I used to do a, a, a voiceover. For, for a commercial and it was all strictly worked out equity had worked it all out how much we got paid and uh, and they would just top these things up and you'd think it took me 10 minutes i once um i once had my longest period of unemployment uh yeah two months and after two months i thought oh, looks like it's all fallen apart i better i better sign on so i went down and signed on basically so i could get free dental care and milk for my children 
and uh, and they said and this is the time of course where you didn't have to say do you have any savings they just say are you unemployed and so I was unemployed I could show I was unemployed and they signed me on and they said okay you're going to get 52 pounds a week and free milk I went great thank you uh, and then the next week the following week I, I got called in to do a voiceover for for something and uh, I had to go back and they said to, I went back to sign off because I said well I've worked and they said all oh, right have you worked in the last week because we won't be able to give you that week I said oh, no it doesn't matter they said well what did you did you work I said yeah I did yeah he said well, well you know how many days did you work I said I, well one really well not even one well how long did you work I said uh, 10 minutes and they went well that doesn't really count how much did you earn I said six thousand pounds <laughs> and this poor woman working in the unemployment exchange went I'm sorry I said six thousand pounds what she said what did you do rob a bank <laughs> bless her oh, that's amazing so yes you can see you know it's absurd isn't it it's not it's not right it's not right that people get paid that sort of money for that sort of thing for saying you know Barclays Bank aren't they lovely you know it's just happening to have a deep resonant voice you know uh, yeah, do you get paid that's that's it's madness you know our oh, andrex is really soft yes we know we know andrex <laughs> thank you for telling us at the end of the advert i can tell you a toilet paper is soft I don't need a voiceover to say andrex it's really soft that, but that's... they do. They pay you a lot. Of, pay you loads of money to do it, and that and pays you know, for you to be able to do the art, though. Surely, it, yeah, yeah. it makes, means that if you want to, you can go and do something at the Battersea Arts Centre, and you can do a, a fringe play, and you can do all the things that you really enjoy doing. And in fact, you can even just do theatre. So you can go do rep theatre, you know. And when I first started doing, when I first started doing theatre, the equity minimum fee for doing a play was £240 a week. That's how much you got paid. Quite good money, 1982. It's all right, thank you very much. The last play I did in rep, and I got and the equity minimum. So this is 40 years later. With all that inflation and everything, the equity minimum, £490 a week. So you can see how much people are now struggling yeah. to make a living you know I, I've, and that's me with everything I've done bringing that to a play or bringing that to a rehearsal room bringing that to an audience all the things that I've learned and done and then hopefully all the things I can demonstrate to younger actors and pass on and all the things they're going to teach me through their enthusiasm and and daring and, and that sort of stuff you know bring out of me great fun of course you want to do that but just absolutely impossible. I mean, if I were 32 and uh, and had a large mortgage and two small children, I'd, my wife would have to be doing a proper job for me to mess around on in the theatre. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. It's not regarded as a proper job. They don't regard it as, you know, and at the moment, they've said, oh, we've given, you know, £150 million to the Arts Council. You say, no, 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 you were going to give them that anyway. Don't start claiming it as some sort of extra money you've given them. They haven't. The theatres all over the country are closing down and going bankrupt. They will yeah. go under. And and by the time we get out of this thing, by the time an audience feels confident enough to walk back into a, an enclosed room and sit right next to somebody else 
while you all laugh together. I don't know. Could yeah. be years. And uh, Nuffield just could be dead. Years and years. Nuffield. And it could be dead. By then it's dead. You know, it's gone. The RSC doesn't survive that. You know, yeah. the Globe doesn't survive it. National Theatre yeah. doesn't survive it. Globe's They're under gone. threat at the moment, isn't it? Yep. Globe, yeah. Globe, Globe is in desperate straits. So you are saying, well, you, as a nation, the nation that has produced all these things over the years, the nation that's famous for its performers, famous for its theatre, famous for its actors, you know, we supply America with actors, left, right and centre. Uh, you know, we, we our films are, are all over the world are, are full of English actors, all trained in this country, all learn their craft through the system that we have in place. They're going to let it just go. It's going to disappear. And if, if you want to go back to a war metaphor here, like uh, when uh, Churchill was faced with uh, people who wanted to take money from the arts to uh, invest in the yeah. war, and he said, what are we saving it for? Mm. Like, what, what are we saving this what war we, for? What are we fighting for if we're not fighting for that, to, yeah. res- to preserve those things? Absolutely. It, it's true. I think it's absolutely true. It, it may seem flippant. It may seem unimportant. But it's those sort of things that are important. They're the things that you that it's about. Uh, it's what life is about, those things. I mean, I'm not saying it's the most important thing. You, of course, put money into hospitals before you put them into me. You don't fund school. But, but, you know, it's not wasted money. It's not wasted money because of the effect it has on people when they see it. And also, theatre generates more money than it costs. The, the public purse puts less money into the theatre than the than theatres pay into the tax revenue. So theatre doesn't cost this country anything, anything at all. In fact, it makes money for this country. So to sort of go, oh, well, why are we we wasting all that money on the arts for? You're not wasting it. It's not wasted. It's an investment in something that will pay you back. Think of the revenue that's made from the enormous films that are made, staffed with people who've learned their craft and learned their skill through the, the system that we have set up in this country. It's crucial. It's absolutely crucial if we're going to keep... The identity of being uh, English or British, that that we that we preserve those things that make us that, I think. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, sir, before we uh, wrap up this chat, I did want to talk about your new podcast. I, I found it absolutely. I've, I've just listened to the Rufus Hound one so far. The uh, latest episode. All oh, right, lovely. Absolutely wonderful. Like uh, just the conversation you had about shoes, I think just demonstrates what a great <laughs> format this is. So it's a My Time Capsule podcast, which I will put up the My Twitter Time handle. Capsule, yes. My yes, TC that's it. Pod. Thank you very much. Uh, to, uh, it's very good fun. It's just it's just me basically talking to. Well, you know, I've gathered together a, an enormous bunch of friends, and we're talking about all the things, the five things that they would put into a time capsule from their life, tiny little unimportant things. You know, four that they treasure because they're they're significant in their life, although they seem insignificant, and one that they they sort of regret and wish hadn't happened and would therefore like to banish to a time capsule and get rid of it, never have to see it again. And that's always the interesting one, I always think. But yeah. it's been really, really lovely fun. We've had Stephen Fry, we had Mark Gators, so he's, you should listen yeah, to Mark. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's absolutely wonderful. He's wonderful. There we are. I know you all can see you're getting ready to say good night. No, no, no. I just, I was just agreeing. Mark Gatiss is this my, on my list of the ones to check out. Oh no, no, no. He's, he's yeah, he's one yeah. of the great men, one of the great men of this country. I went round to his house. Luckily, I did it just before lockdown. Went round to his house. We sat on the sofa, lovely little place in Islington. He's got, 
uh, and he had his dog between us. We had a cup of tea. I put my little hard disk recorder down in between us and we chatted about the things he wanted to put into a time capsule. It's a good device. It's a good way of yeah. getting people to to talk about things that they wouldn't talk about. That's what I like about it is that if you if I say to you, think of something in your life that and think of something now that is that is really significant to you, but actually nobody would know about it. Nobody would recognize it. Nobody would say, oh, yeah, and of course, that's that really important thing. They talk about your job. They talk about the work you've done. They talk about your career, as we have. But they don't talk about... <clears throat> we did start by talking about teachers and things like that and what they, the influence they had. But they don't talk... You don't talk about, you know, what, why did you fall in love with acting? What, what was the thing that made you do that? What is the moment? What was the moment for you where that happened, you know? And for me, it was uh, going on... You know, so if I had to put something in there, I would put, uh, I would, I would put a, a houseboat, the houseboat that I went on holiday with my friends when I was seventeen. I went on holiday to uh, on this houseboat, and it was clearly just a lads' jolly. That's why we went. Five lads on a houseboat, going down a river, going to stop at Stratford. We were going to drink the place dry. It was just the most fantastic trip, and we were just we'd gone for a lark. And hopefully we might meet some girls, invite them back to our houseboat. <laughs> so anyway, you know, sort of a barge is one of those barge things. And we moored uh, directly opposite the Royal Shakespeare Company, the Memorial Theatre. And we got off the boat, we were tying it up, and I looked up and on you know, the balcony for the dressing room used to be on the side facing the river. It's not there anymore, but uh, the dressing rooms have all been extended. But at the time, there was just this one balcony with the green room behind it. And standing on that balcony were a load of, of actors in uh, Roman gear, uh, or smoking fags, <laughs> and sort of looking around at the day and everything. And I thought, wow, that looks interesting. And I said, oh, it's a Royal Shakespeare Company. Lads. And they all went, yeah. I went, should we go and see something? And they went, Shakespeare? Are you kidding? We just finished doing A levels. The last thing we wanted to do was do bloody Shakespeare, you know. So uh, I said, "Well, I, I don't know. I'm going to have a look." And I walked across, and they said, "All right, we're going to the pub. We're in the pub." So I walked across, and uh, they said, "Oh, it's a, a matinee, just about to start." And uh, uh, and it was they'd oh no, it was an evening performance about to start. They'd just done the matinee, which was uh, which I think was Coriolanus, and they in the evening they were doing Romeo and Juliet. And they said, you want, you can get five pound standing tickets. So I thought, oh, you're coming, I might as well. So I went in and I stood at the back and I watched Ian McKellen and Francesca Annis uh, play Romeo and Juliet. That's how long ago it was, Ian McKellen, Ian McKellen playing Romeo. <laughs> and, uh, and it was just magical, magical. Mm. And from that moment, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I, I thought, I want to do that. I want to be one of them. And and it took me 50, what, how long was it? Another, I was 58. So it took me another, yeah, 41 years to get to the Royal Shakespeare Company. And uh, and on the first night of my, that I was working the RSC, the opening night, we developed a saying during rehearsal, which we were all looking for things to do. The director was a, was a wonderful actress called Selena Cadell. She was directing this play. She would. She started this saying, which was, you know, if we were looking for something, you know, 
really ridiculous. Come on, come up with a really ridiculous idea here. We need to liven it up a bit. She started saying, come on, what would Fenton Stevens do? Which made us laugh to begin with, because it sort of, you know, it was a, it was a, a jibe at me to say, you know, you're yeah, the sort yeah. of actor who doesn't care. You know, you'll do anything. You're mad. You know, most of them are rubbish. Most of your ideas are rubbish. But, you know, that's what I want. I want people to just throw ideas into that. So she started saying, what would Fenton Stevens do? And uh, it, I, I was, you know, I was complimented by it. I liked the idea that, that at my age, I was still regarded as being a bit of a risk taker, you know, yeah. or in, in fact, an innovator. You know, I liked it. I was, I was pleased. And then on our opening night, all these young actors all standing there and me, uh, and she gathered us all together to say, I'm just have a quick word before you, you know, before you go off and get ready, you know, about the play and everything. She said, oh, it's hot, isn't it? She took her, t- her sweatshirt off and she had a T-shirt on with my face on it. <laughs> and what would Fenton Stevens do written on it? And on the back was the, the Royal Shakespeare Company logo, but done not RSC, but FSC, Fenton Stevens Company, it said underneath him. And it's the, the highest compliment I've ever been paid. In fact, I, I, it made me cry. And then everybody else, all the rest of the cast and the crew, all took their jumpers off and they all had one on. It was quite extraordinary. Wow. And I, I tell you, it's a highlight of my career. So, you know, it was worth waiting, really. It was worth waiting all those years for that extraordinary thing. And that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted it to be. I wanted that sense of company and, and adventure and, and, you know, doing things together and taking the risk and having the nerve to go out in front of an audience and do something you don't know. I don't know if it's going to work. I don't know if this is going to get a laugh. I'm going to try it. I'm going to do it. Let's see. Let's find out. It's only through doing that that you discover, yeah, it uh, it did. It worked. And then I can be even more daring, you know, and it's having, taking away that thing of that people say, oh, I don't know how you stand up in front of people. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you learn all your lines. You say, well, line learning is just repetition. You just keep saying it over and over and over and over and over again until you can't not say it, until you know every word and you don't have to think about it. And, Acting and standing in front of people is what it's not a it's not a war. Again, it's not a war. You're not going to die. Nobody's going to kill. Well, hopefully, unless you're Lincoln. But nobody's you know nobody's going to shoot you. And it, it, it's a uh, it's it, it, you know the, the most that's going to happen is that a bunch of strangers are going to stare at you like, like as if you're an idiot. Yeah. Which I find personally very amusing. I yeah. like the idea of a whole audience. I've, I have been in things where the, I've done things and it's been like the producers. The whole audience has gone. And that's it, just staring you open-mouthed. It's a really wonderful thing. It, yeah. it makes me laugh enormously rather than it embarrassing me. It doesn't embarrass me at all. Well, I do try and uh, end these conversations by asking for one bit of advice, a different bit of advice from uh, all the people I speak to, uh, to to help us all improve in our own way. So uh, you may have already kind of answered this in a way, but I just love the fact that you're starting a podcast, like after years of doing so many different things, you're still finding something new to do. What would you give as a bit of advice to someone about starting something new and about being brave to do that? Well, I think that that... Don't be frightened of it. Don't be frightened of it. What can happen? It can fail. I mean, you know, and so, so what? You know, 
then it fails. Then it didn't work. You know, I don't know if this is going to work. I've had enormous fun doing it. I've spoken to lots of friends in a more detailed and more uh, passionate way than I have. I've, I've spoken to people that I've known for a long, long time. Uh, and we've always just had chit-chat or we've chatted at parties or we've had dinner parties and we just tell anecdotes and make jokes. And suddenly I'm talking to people about things that really matter to them and they really care about, either because they find them fantastically funny or they find them fantastically moving or it's a really powerful memory for them. And to discover those things about people it has been incredibly rewarding. So I went into it not thinking that would be the reward, thinking that the reward would be that I would be able to continue to work, you know, that I would have another job to do. And who knows, it might be successful and it might, uh, I'm, I'm making it with my son. And, you know, my son is a music producer and uh, it's not easy, it's not an easy life. And I was hoping that it would generate some revenue that could go to him and help him and my grandchildren. So that was my aim really to do that and uh, and it's turned out to be so much more than that and it's it's reignited friendships that I've had and and in fact consolidated others you know ones that people I've known for a long time suddenly I feel very close to them and I think the same uh, them with me I've surprised myself I've surprised myself as you can tell probably from this one hour and 35, 31 minutes and 55 seconds of me talking almost non-stop. <laughs> I can talk for England. But doing a podcast with other people, the important thing is that, that I don't. Yeah. I don't do that. I listen like you have. I sit back and let other people talk. And when they run out, I ask them a question about what they've been saying. So in fact, I've learned to listen. And it's a very re rewarding thing. It's something that I think... I've probably never done. I've always had my own opinion and I've been very keen to get it out there. And suddenly I found that actually not interrupting people and not butting in with what I think, it, you get more out of it that way. It's a much more interesting conversation. I, I have learned that I can retain things in my head. I don't have to say them the moment they think they occur to me. Yeah. I can talk to someone, let it go. And then if, in fact, we're sort of still on that subject, I can go back to it yeah. and talk to it in my own time. And something about it, knowing as well, if, if something doesn't come back, then it probably wasn't that important or you've moved to somewhere else in the conversation. Absolutely. So if, it, if you've, you know, no point in forcing it back in there. If it's not there and you, you think of things all the time, you think of things, oh, I know things, something about that. I could say something about that, but it's not the job. It's not your job. Your job is to, is to listen and help people along the way and that's terribly rewarding and it's i've done some recordings i mean one of the things people have said about this podcast is that they like it because it is a conversation and it is like two people chatting some of them are i mean it, it's always the guest who speaks the most but yeah. i will chip in but i have done some recordings where i've hardly spoken at all i've just said really i see and why did that happen? And then off they go again. And it, you know, it's fine. I get to the end of it and say, well, great. So, you know, and then I say, so what's the second thing you want to put in the time capsule? And then they tell me. Yeah. And I don't need to do anything else. I just listen to what they say. And, and I act as the listening audience will. And if I'm held, if they're holding my attention and what they're saying is fascinating, 
then I'm fairly confident that another person listening to it would have a similar reaction. You know, it's not been easy in every century since lockdown. This whole process of talking like this. Um, I'm pleased. I'm going to look this technology up actually because I've had problems with Zoom getting the right level. I've got some recordings. I've got a, a fantastic episode going out uh, in a few weeks' time, which I did with the Reverend Richard Cole. Oh, wow. uh, and and he's just the most charming man, most lovely man. And I've I've sort of known him since before he was a well. I have known him since well before he was a vicar because I knew him when he was in uh, the Commodores, uh, not the Commodores, Communards. Communards, not the code, the Bronsky beat he was in when I knew Br- Bronsky beat. That's amazingly long time ago. And um, yeah, so uh, my son uh, who works on it with me said, talks about God a lot, doesn't he? And I said, yes, he does. He's a vicar. <laughs> of course he does. He goes back to God all the time. And he said, I know, but you sound a bit like you might be agreeing with him. I said, oh, no, I don't. No, no, listen to it again. I don't. Uh, because I don't agree with him. Sadly, you know, yeah. I'm happy to hear, if I'm happy to him have an opinion. I'm not going to force my opinions on him either. If he wants to tell me about, you know, the, the glory of God and everything, and he said, you know, do you see that? And I go, yeah, in some things. I mean, and so I, that's my that's as critical as I want to get in this thing. I don't want to start an argument. You know, it, but it's the sound quality of it is disappointing for me because it was such a lovely interview. I think we'll get away with it. But so the technology side of it has been difficult. Yeah. But I would say, you know, uh, but I've learned more about technology and about, you know, how to set things up and recording. And I knew nothing about it. It was not my area. I left it to other people. But, you know, now I've got, you know, working on clean feed and all sorts of stuff, you know, all sorts of different ways of doing it. It was a sort of technology got microphones hello testing you know all that sort of stuff so yeah it's been really it's been really interesting really interesting and uh, lovely and rewarding have you ever heard of the uh, or you might have actually worked for them a big finish who do the yeah i I work for them lots of times in fact mark and i did something just before that's when i first said to him do you want to do my podcast we did uh we did a a recording with tom baker about five miles from where i live because Tom Baker used to live in Tunbridge Wells, which is where I live, and yep. Louise Jamieson lives in Rust Hall, which is just outside of Tunbridge Wells, so they tend to do the recordings for, that involve that doctor in this area. So it's handy to have me, but Mark, who's such an enormous Doctor Who fan, yeah, yeah. will turn up, he'll turn up for the opening of a Doctor Who paper bag. You know, it's, <laughs> it's extraordinary. He, he, you know, do you want to play this part? We had the most fabulous day. I've been such a... Uh, an admirer and fan of his for such a long time and uh, in fact we first met Mark and I because my, my wife and I went to see the League of Gentlemen in, in a theatre show and it was my wife's birthday and I said well get them to sign it get them to sign happy birthday she's a bigger fan of them than I am and she said no I'd be embarrassing I said nothing embarrassing about it but as you can see I don't get embarrassed very often about anything so I said I'll do it I'll do it ridiculous I went to the stage door with this thing, saying, you know, just to say to them, can you sign this to Mandy? It's her birthday. And a, and a door opened, and Mark was standing there, and he went, hello. And I went, hello. And he went, come in, come in. Oh, nice to see you. And I went in, and we said, how you been? Did you see the show? I said, I did see the show. Oh, I said, oh, it was great. I really love my wife's here. It's her birthday. I was going to get you all to sign her program. He said, of course, of course. Why don't you bring her in? I went, um, well, by that point, we reached the dressing room 
where the rest of the League of Gentlemen were standing there, and he walked in. And he said, "Look, everyone, look, look! It's um, it's a bloke off the telly. I've never met him. I've never, we've not met before, have we?" And I went, "No." It was exactly what we were talking about earlier that we'd never yeah. met and he'd seen me and he assumed we had. So he invited me in because he's such a sweet man. Yeah. And then of course I chatted to them and I have worked with all of them since on different things and uh, you know, had great fun. Great fun. Yeah, because because they they recently did a a, a bonus kind of like uh, to the end of the series they just did with Tom Baker on yeah, audio. They did, yeah, yeah. And they did one where they'd got everyone to record at home and they managed to marry up the sound and it was just you i i had no idea that was the case until they revealed it in the extras afterwards i was listening back to this thing and, and it, just how they managed to sync up all these disparate audio qualities as well that everyone recorded i know and, i know i know it's extraordinary well yes i can't do it with two people so imagine doing the whole thing but people are making television programs online they're all doing you know, there's a thing called uh done breeding which uh uh is, is out at the moment, which has just been, everybody's made it in their own houses with their own cameras and stuff and then sent the stuff and it's all been put together. It's amazing. It's about a bunch of women who've hit menopause. Very good. Sounds great. Julie Graham is in it. Lovely. So there we are. That's it. That's me talking rubbish for, you know, I've been, been rambling on. <laughs> oh no no sir that, you call it rambling i call it content uh just a reminder everyone <laughs> please go to uh, twitter to my tc pod and follow uh the wonderful uh, my time capsule podcast wherever you get your podcasts and while you're there if you fancy following the dr squeeze show i wouldn't mind uh Absolutely. so thank you very much for spending the evening with us sir it's been a pleasure no, it's all right. Yes, look, it's good because all it means, I've only had one glass, I haven't even had one glass. Look at that. And normally yeah. by this point, I'd be off my face. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've tried to make it as far as Wednesday, at least before we start drinking the rum. <laughs> <laughs> Very wise. Very wise. I'm, ne I'm never going to make it through this. <laughs> well, uh, I have been Doug Discree and joining me this week has been... Mike Fenton-Stevens. And uh, until next week, I've been Doug the Scree. This has been my show. Hey.